Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative was launched by Utah State University Extension in 2018 in an effort to provide effective resources to address opioid use among rural Utahns. The initiative team is working to combat the effects of opioid misuse through prevention, recovery, and treatment with a primary focus on stigma reduction education. And as a part of this initiative, a Rural Opioid Health and Wellness Summit is being held this week at USU Eastern in Price. It's happening on Thursday and uh, Friday. You can find out more about that by going to extension.usu.edu slash rural opioid summit. And uh, USU Extension Health and Wellness Specialist Sandra Sulzer uh, says that Utah is in many ways an unusually healthy state. She says we have some of the lowest rates of cancer in the nation, lower than average tobacco and alcohol use rates. Nonetheless, opioids have become a major issue. She says that between 2000 and 2015, the state saw a 400% increase in deaths resulting from misuse and abuse of prescription drugs. Some counties, such as Carbon and Emory, have rates well above the state average, which puts them among the hardest hit in the nation. So this summit is well-timed. And we're going to preview the summit on the program today. Uh, we're going to hear from Savannah Ely, who will tell us her amazing and hopeful story of addiction and ongoing recovery. Her presentation at the summit is titled The Beautiful Struggle. She also works uh, in helping others uh, in recovery. We'll hear from uh, Dean Joseph Ward from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. He'll be presenting at the summit. Uh, Tim Cady from USU Extension, who's a presenter, will join us. Stacy MacArthur with USU Extension uh, will join us as well. She's a state youth health and wellness uh, coordinator. And we'll hear uh, later in the program from Matea Savoy Roscos from Department of uh, Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Sciences at Utah State University. She'll be talking about something called motivational interviewing, which can help people in recovery. We begin by hearing an uh, incredible story of uh, Savannah Ely. So you're presenting at the conference. What, uh, what will you be presenting? I'm going to be talking about um, my story, my journey through addiction and into recovery. Okay, well, that'll be very, that'll be very helpful. Um, and so uh, maybe we could just start there. Um, tell us your story in brief. What... Um, how did you get uh, into opioids? What was uh, what was the beginning there? The beginning for me of getting into opioids was I had just had my daughter and I was suffering from postpartum depression. And my ex-husband at the time was somewhat abusing Percocets and he handed me one. And when I took it, it was like magic. You know, I felt great. I could do the things that you know, I needed to do and actually get out of bed. It gave me energy. It took away all my bad feelings. And that was just, you know, that that one little pill, you know, to, just was the beginning of my 10-year battle through an opiate addiction. So 10 years. Wow. Uh, so yes. uh, obviously you're responding to pain, right? You're responding to, uh, and, yeah. and, and initially this was a good thing. I guess it re- removed your pain. Yeah, it, and you know, it wasn't so much pain, physical pain, but it was more, you know, like the emotional and mental pain that I see. people suffer from when they're in a, in depression. Yeah, so you, you were in, in, in depression. Um, so how how quickly did you feel like you were dependent on, on these pills? 
Oh, it was fast. I like I when I look back on you know that first pill because I remember taking that first pill clear as day. So I want to say I was addicted to it right then. I was addicted to the feeling of escaping that reality almost, and you know being being a normal person and not even I shouldn't even say a normal person, but I was so depressed I I couldn't even get out of bed some days, you know, it was a battle to get out of bed and having a brand new daughter, you know, it was so hard because I knew I needed to get up. I needed to be that mom and that depression just wouldn't let me. So as soon as that pill kicked in and I could see that, oh, like this is the answer, you know, at the time, um, I would say I was addicted right then, that first pill, but I didn't withdraw and like, you know, become dependent on them for probably about a week, two weeks after after about two weeks, I realized that that I you know I I was suffering from at that time a mild you know mild withdrawals. Uh, so you, when you wouldn't take them, did you try that not taking them, and then you'd you'd suffer withdrawals? Yeah, I would suffer withdrawals, and I would I would feel worse than I did before even ever taking one. Yeah. Uh, so then then what happened? You you found that okay to I'm either taking these pills or I'm depressed. Was that kind of the choice? Yeah, I, I guess I, I made that choice to self-medicate myself. You know, that stigma with mental health was um, huge at that time, too. You know, oh, depression, people that are depressed, they're, you know, that, that whole stigma. And so I didn't want to admit that I had depression or let alone, you know, be diagnosed with um, postpartum depression or anything. And so I just chose to, you know, self-medicate myself. I found that one thing that worked for me, and I thought, that it was going to change my whole life, which it did, but just not in the way that I thought it was going to. Mm-hmm. Because at this time, you know, the whole you can become dependent on these and addicted things wasn't talked about when these opiates were prescribed. You know, people, you know, well, I'm sure that, you know, down the road it was, but at that time I didn't really know that you could become addicted to them. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what addiction was, really. I was really young. I was probably, or well, I was 19 years old. And this was, you know, quote unquote, re, you know, more respectable. You, I mean, you weren't out shooting a heroin and, and such. Yeah, and in my mind, you know, that stigma that even in addiction that you place on somebody else that's doing something hardcore, you know, that you would consider. Well, at least I'm not a heroin heroin um, abuser or a meth abuser, or you know, but still, I was abusing a substance. But. In my mind, I could justify it. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about addiction is you can always justify your using, whether it's a bad day or whether it's a really good day, and you can use because it's been such a good day. Yeah, that's interesting. You always always justify it in your mind. I'm interested in the stigma. So that was part of your story, right? Um, I guess it, had there not been a stigma, um, the path maybe would be to go get counseling, right? Or I don't know, get oh, treatment, yes. get uh, go to a doctor, uh, get get something prescribed. Yes, yes, most definitely, I would have, you know. And that was the hard thing, is I had so many friends who had kids, you know, and houses and husbands, and you know, they're like taking care of their family and taking their kids to do things. Their houses immaculate, and you know, they're that picture perfect mom in my mind. And I thought, why can't I be like them? I don't. They're not suffering from postpartum why why am i you know so it was just i didn't want to let anybody know that i had that i was suffering from this postpartum depression mm. that stigma 
of what are gonna, what are people going to say? Am I a bad mom? You know, being that young too, you just you have all these things that run through your head when you really care what people think about you, and you don't want to be made out to be that girl that had her kid and is very depressed type of person, you know. And so that stigma played a huge role into with mental health played a huge role into when I you know why I did what I did. So you, yeah. So you're taking the pills. It seems to be working. What what point did you uh, did you think? Oh, maybe maybe this is not maybe this is not going to work, or there's going to be problems. Oh, I knew. You know, it was it was probably a year later. I could say, um, you know, just withdrawing when that, you know, um, whole the whole reason why I was using it so I could be that mom, be the wife and, you know, take care of my stuff and make sure, you know, make sure everybody's good. When that flipped to being, I don't care about the house. I need to find some pills. You know, I I can't get out of bed without these pills. That became a problem, you know, and over 10 years, that 10 years, you know, I lost homes and cars and jobs. You know, and then me and my ex-husband ended up getting divorced over both of our substance use. So it was, you know, it took a toll. It it took a toll. And that was just the beginning stage of my addiction, even, you know, five years into it. It was at the end of my addiction where I really got started abusing opiates very, very hard. Mm. Uh, So your husband was, uh, he's the one who gave you the Percocet, right? Yes. Originally, uh, so he was he was using he was taking Percocet all through this time as well. Yes, he was. We would yeah. both use, and that was just toxic too. Because if one of us wanted to find recovery, we would feed off the other one. You know, the other one didn't, and then when that one did, the other one didn't. So it it turned it was it turned into you know toxic for for both of us. I'm curious about. And I don't know how much you can reveal or should reveal about your husband's, but uh, what was the initiator for for him? So pain was it, or it was surgeries? Yeah, surgeries. Okay, so he had surgeries done and got hooked on him from just having a having a surgery. Yeah, and that's not an unusual story. I'm I'm understanding. No. Yeah. No, it's it's really not. You know, he was a coal miner working in the coal mines, and you know that's rough on your body. And then being prescribed these. Um, you become, you know, it's so easy to become dependent on them. Uh, so uh, you say ten years, ten years. You were, you were, you were taking taking these uh, this Percocet, um, dependent on it, right? Very addictive. Yes. Now, did that lead you? You said it led led you to other things, did it? Yes, it did. Um, towards the end of my addiction, you know, I was doing. 500 milligrams of oxycodone a day and it led me to wanting to get clean and hanging with the wrong crowd which then led me to using uh, meth and um so then you know i was using meth and xanax and opiates together which was just you know took me downhill super fast and within six months you know i was at rock bottom of my whole entire life the lowest i'd been in my life and um, you know, getting clean at that point for me, I just felt like it was hopeless. You know, I did come off the pills eventually, but it was, I was using meth and that was rock bottom for me. I attempted suicide twice hmm. and it was, it was just a horrible experience. Yeah, that, that does sound uh, like it. Um, so you said it, 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 at what point did you, did you think to yourself, okay, 
wow, I'm addicted to these, um, and I want to, I want to get clean. At what point? Because I imagine, you know, the the very first time you say I want to get clean, it's not going to happen right then, right? No, no. You know, I used to think I used to look at people that you know didn't suffer from substance abuse, and I would be so jealous of them because I'm thinking you have all this energy to go do everything you need to do, and here I am having to be dependent on something to even be able to get out of bed. And so I would visualize myself in recovery a lot. I remember laying in my bathtub multiple times, just withdrawing and thinking, I can't, I can't wait until the day I find recovery. And I would think of what it would look like for me and how, how I would never go back, you know, and all this stuff. But taking that first step, that's the hardest because it's so unknown. When you spend 10 years of your life in something, living without something that becomes your comfort and, you know, your, your escape. It's so scary to think of life without it. That's interesting. So uh, just trying to visualize, I guess, getting back to a life without this, um, kind of scary. Yes. Hmm. Yes, it is. You know, and it wasn't until after my, um, second suicide attempt that when I woke up, I was, that was the first time that I was ever scared for myself. And, I knew, you know, I needed to get clean, and I started wanting recovery more and more, and the more and more I wanted recovery, the more and more my life became uncomfortable. So not easy. Um, no. Have to really fight for your recovery. Yes. Yeah. What did you— Definitely have fight. What did you tell your, your kids? I mean, your kids probably uh, obvious—I don't know, obvious something's wrong with mom? Yeah, when I was when I was abusing uh, meth, um, I did not have my kids, so I okay. I left them. I didn't leave them, but I asked their dad to take them because I knew where I was going, you know, and I knew that it was a dark place, and I didn't even want my kids around me. I didn't want to be around anybody, and so um, they didn't get to see me at my lowest point. But I'm very open with my kids about um, my addiction. And, you know, because they're so prone to getting it because it runs on both sides of their family. Oh, oh, really? So this is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm very open about it and tell that, you know, and I tell them, you just got to be a lot smarter with the choices you make because just that one pill or that one drink and, you, you know, you can become dependent on it. It'll mm-hmm. ruin your whole life. So I'm very open with my kids now. You know, they're still they're still pretty young, so I don't share everything, but just what I feel like they could use. So you talked about, you know, you, you hit, uh, hit rock bottom, a couple of suicide uh, attempts. So I'm sure glad that it didn't work. Um, you're still yeah. with us. Um, what, what, what did start to work for you? You know, what happened for me was I was driving. I was actually driving to get, um, to get drugs. And I was crying, you know, I knew that this wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I was tired of living this way. And I went to, I went to someone's house that I avoided at all costs, which was my brother, who is a police officer. And I begged him for help. And I can't even explain how bad I begged him for help. And um, he told me, I cannot save you. He says, I can't save you. You have to save yourself. And he says, you better, go to, you better go to mom and dad's house and you better tell them what you was doing. And he says, and I'll come and talk to you in a couple of days. Well, when those couple of days um, passed, he did. He showed up and he says, you get in my truck. I'm taking you to the sheriff's office. 
and I, I'll tell you, I was that fear was was real because I was thinking of all the things that was going to go bad, how you know how I probably wouldn't be leaving the sheriff's office. And two detectives sat me down and they talked to me, and I, you know, that was my biggest thing was I have to sit here and tell you guys, you know, the truth about me, who I am, what I've been doing, and you know, something that I'm very, very, very ashamed of. And so I did. And, you know, the most amazing thing happened, and it was, I call it the breakthrough, but they gave me a reality check, but it was wrapped in compassion. You know, I walked into that sheriff's office and four days clean, and, you know, because of the tough love, but compassion they showed me, now, I, now I'm a person in long-term recovery. And, and, yeah, go ahead. And, you know, even to today, there's such a supportive part of my recovery. Wow. Yeah, that's wonderful. What, well, imagine it, imagine it wasn't a exact straight line from then to, to hear what were some of the difficult parts of, of, of getting into recovery and making it stick. The most difficult part, I think, of me coming into recovery was actually feeling your emotions and having to figure out what they were. Because, you know, when you numb something for so long, you can't, you don't feel it. Like, you feel it, but you don't feel it all the way. And so figuring out what my emotions were were really hard, but um, I had got myself into therapy, and I was placed on naltrexone. And that helped. That helped with cravings and stuff. But anxiety was super bad, and, um, you know, I was two weeks clean, I think, at this point, and my anxiety was just so horrible, and I, I didn't know what to do. And so that's when me and my dog started running, you know, and that seemed to help my recovery. But it's just a battle every day. It wasn't easy, but it you know, but it 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 was worth it. It three three or four weeks being clean. Um, I had the most amazing experience happen to me. Um, I was pushing my youngest daughter on her trike outside and playing and. I stopped and I had these feelings that I have never felt in my whole entire life, well, at least for a long time, come over me. And it was pure joy and happiness and just being grateful for that single moment. And at that moment, I was like, this is, this is what I'm fighting for. Like, I'm doing the things now that I needed to be high to be, that I thought I had to be high to be, you know, from playing with my kids to doing all kinds of stuff. It was, it was, a, it was a very powerful moment for me. I'm so glad you had that. Um, so, so you, it, to this day, you run with your dog, do you? That's part of it? Yes, that's part of my recovery. That's my outlet. I will run every night. Self-care is huge. You know, I, I, had to, I had to figure out a lot of self-care, which way, you know, even if it was just sitting, sitting by myself and thinking and journaling or, you know, going for a ride by myself, just that one-on-one was huge for me. And I had so much support from people that I didn't know. And um, I became, or I started a suicide support group down here with um, one of one of my really good friends now, um, Ann Larson, and she, she helped me. She was such a great support system for me. You know, I just had this whole support that on my bad days I could reach out and I could, you know, hey, I'm having a bad day, and they would talk to me. Because I didn't get, I didn't ever really get to the point where I would just crave drugs really bad, I would get to the point where it was like, I know I don't want to go back there, but, you know, and I, then I would get a little suicidal almost. But therapy helped me so much with that 
four quarters in price. That's where I was going to therapy, and they was honestly amazing with me. If you just joined us, we're talking with Savannah Ely. Uh, she's telling us her uh, an amazing, wonderful uh, recovery story. Uh, she is opioid prevention specialist at Southeast Health Department located in Price, and she'll be presenting at the Rural Opioid Health and Wellness Summit. That's happening on Thursday and Friday uh, in uh, in Price. That's uh, at USU Eastern in Price, presented by Utah State University, USU Extension. Um, so you've had this amazing um, experience in, in your life. I'm sure the impulse is to help others. You, you t- talked about uh, sport group uh, on suicide. Um, so what do you tell people? What's your advice to, to people who might be addicted um, or, or facing, maybe facing uh, stigmas that you were worried about, for example? Just to keep going. You know, that stigma will keep you where you're at. That stigma will, the stigma, in my mind, that stigma has no difference than the addiction itself because that stigma will take just as much as addiction will take from you. There was a lot of times I faced stigma in my addiction, and it made me not present in my in the moments. It made it so those moments that I was spending with my kids and my family that I wasn't grateful for them because I because I deserve or because I thought I didn't deserve to be grateful for them. So just don't even matter. It, you know, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you, what anybody's saying of you. You know, you got to do it for yourself. As long as you believe in you, that stigma doesn't even matter. I was faced with that stigma my whole recovery, and I just, I would not let anybody, anybody bring me down with it. Mm. Um, so stigma about addiction, right, and stigma about mental health. Do you think those stigmas are changing I do. I see them changing. I see them changing a lot. They haven't changed as much as I would love to see them change, but they are changing. It's just a process. It's going to take time. People are going to need to be educated about addiction and what it, you know, what it does. And I think that, you know, around in my community, people are seeing that this is affecting, you know, every class of people. It's affecting the working class, the lower class, the stay-at-home moms. It's affecting everybody, and, you know, the, they can't just put a stigma on someone and say that they'll never get better because people recover from this, and people can create beautiful lives, and I think people are starting to see that now. Uh, what would your advice be to family members or friends of people who are facing some of the problems you went through? Have boundaries. They need to have boundaries and practice self-care just as much as someone in recovery does um you know read about enabling because enabling is keeping people sick and people are dying from enabling um craft or usera has a great class called craft that they do that's a family support group for the loved ones and i've sat in it and it is an amazing group um make sure you have support if your loved one is suffering from it you should you know you need support just as much if not more and they should be in, you know, maybe check therapy out too and um, just have boundaries and practice a lot of self care because it's draining for the family too. I noticed uh, uh, all matter of presentations here in the Rural Opioid Health and Wellness Summit, um, and maybe an indication that um, the, the whole community has to be involved, right? There's the police, there's uh, youth groups. Um, you know, church groups, I'm not sure if they're presenting here, um, therapy, um, 
I noticed, you know, something as simple as at the summit they'll be giving uh, haircuts and talking about food bank and, and those uh, types of things. It's it's a whole community effort. Yes, it is. Um, our whole community is involved in this, from law enforcement to the faith-based, you know, coalition to um, everyone in between. We just want to all come together and work on this because we can't be divided in a thing like this. You know, we all need to come together, and they are going to be doing the law clinic there. And um, I mean, it's just going to be—it's going to be an amazing summit. Now, Oxone trainings will be there; they'll be doing those. They're, they just have so much planned. QPR for suicide prevention—they'll um, be doing that, and it's going to be amazing. I'm so excited for something like this to come to our community. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about your story or about the summit or, or anything else? Just come out and learn. I mean, this is a this this is affecting everybody in our community. But you know, and I just want everybody to come out and just see what it's about. We've we've done so much work putting this together, and it's going to be an it's going to be amazing and full of just education. If you're not sure how to help your loved one, or if you're in you're suffering from a substance use, come out. We you know we will have booths set up there with resources and for everyone. So it's going to be a great event. Well, this uh, we're talking about the Rural Opioid Health and Wellness Summit that's happening Thursday and Friday in Price at USU Eastern there. And uh, more information, you can get more information at extension.usu.edu slash rural opioid summit. And uh, we've been talking with Savannah Ely. She's, being, she's one of the presenters at the summit, and uh, she has told us her amazing story. She's an opioid prevention specialist at Southeast Health Department located in Price. Uh, Savannah Ely, I appreciate it so much. Thanks for telling me your story and, uh, and giving us such great information. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Access U-Time, Tom Williams. As I mentioned there, we are previewing the Rural Opioid Health and Wellness Summit. Uh, That website, once again, you can get more information. The summit is happening on Thursday and Friday at USU Eastern in Price. The website for more information, extension.usu.edu slash rural opioid summit. We'll have much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action online at utahhumanities.org. The White House announced recently Utah State University Assistant Professor Idales Villanueva will receive the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. A first-generation student from Puerto Rico, Dr. Villanueva teaches in the Department of Engineering Education. Dr. Villanueva is the first faculty member from Utah State University to receive this award since it began in 1996, and she is the only award recipient this year from Utah. My name is Helen Cannon, and I garden in Cache Valley. Utah Public Radio is very important to me. It has been for much of my life. It's vital to my happiness. The Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative was launched by Utah State University Extension in 2018 to provide effective resources to address opioid use among rural Utahns. To support these efforts, the initiative hosts a Rural Opioid Health and Wellness Summit in Price. And that's happening on Thursday and Friday. Summit is free to uh, adults and youth 
limited number of lodging and travel scholarships are available. And we want to talk about the uh, opioid epidemic, especially uh, regarding uh, tribal and rural areas. Um, and so uh, to provide an overview here, we bring in um, Joseph Ward, Dean of the College of Humanities and uh, Social Sciences. Thank you. Great to be here, Tom. Uh, we are also uh, talking with uh, Timothy Cady, uh, who is uh, professional practice extension assistant professor. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And Stacy MacArthur is associate extension professor. Thanks for having and, me. And uh, you deal with uh, state youth health and wellness. I understand. I do. Thank you. Uh, let's start with uh, Dean Ward. Uh, this is a big focus for Utah State University. Um, how does that begin? How, how is USU involved? Utah State University's mission as our state's land-grant university is to bring the benefits of research to the communities across our state. And we have faculty members in a number of subject areas that have, over the last two years or so, begun a series of conversations for how can we help, how can we do more to engage Utahns uh, to help them to understand the causes of the opioid epidemic and to help people to realize that there are, in fact, effective steps that can be taken to prevent opioid addiction and to help those who have become addicted to recover and to regain their health. We understand that in many parts of our state, there are limited health care resources, limited numbers of physicians, limited numbers of psychiatrists and psychologists, limited number of, of well-established well treatment centers. And so we are doing whatever we can through our extension system um, and through the work of our faculty to just bring knowledge of um, various techniques and practices that can be alternatives to opioids into some of our communities that might not otherwise have had access uh, to these resources. It occurs to me this is a classic example of the land-grant mission, right? A, a, a crisis which is tearing apart communities and experts who can help. Yes, this is research being put in service of our state. Yeah. Um, let me bring in uh, Tim Cady. So extensions heavily involved here. Uh, what uh, what sorts of programs are being brought to bear? Well, one of the things that began last year was a program called Heart. It's Health Education Advocacy Research and Teaching, or Health Extension. Um, and we were a group of five individuals that were hired to actually work on the opioid crisis across the state of Utah. Um, many of us came with different backgrounds, different responsibilities, um, and we're actually going across the state and trying to reduce those problems that were occurring um, in the state of Utah. One of the things that we're looking at is just reducing simply the terminology used um, for people that are using opioids or misusing opioids or other drugs. Instead of calling them substance abusers or having them be someone that's an addict, we talk about substance use disorder. I'm trying to change that terminology so people don't feel like they're the ones that are always being set aside as addicts um, and being called something that's a derogatory term for them and for others. And, you know, people visualize an addict very different than they would visualize someone who may have a substance use disorder that may be caused by a medical problem. 
Is this something we're looking at? Yeah, the language is powerful, yeah. isn't it? The Certainly way, is. The way we frame it. Yeah. Yes, you know that from what you do, but yeah. we've found that ourselves working with treatment facilities, people that are abusing or misusing drugs call themselves addicts at times, but it also makes them feel that they're not part of society. They feel mm-hmm. less, terms I hear them say are, I feel less than human. Mm-hmm. And so if we think about what we're doing for this summit, we're talking about bringing community members um, together with professional staff and even other community members to talk about what's happening in their community as far as Price, Summit, those other rural counties, and trying to change some of that conversation from the beginning and also giving them opportunities to discuss what they think is important in their communities. Do, do we see, uh, you know, speaking of the, the language we use, do we see that changing? Or are we at the very beginning of trying to get that changed? We're at the very beginning. It's, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not gone very far yet. Um, even people that misuse drugs will call themselves addicts because that's the terms that they feel comfortable with. So once we start talking with them and having them change and having people that are working with them be able to change that terminology, that will become very powerful. And then getting that back out into the public, um, into do- domain, radio, TV, whatever is being done, to have them think of themselves a little differently. That remember, they're not, the, the drugs don't define them. We're talking about being able to do things besides their drugs. They're not their drug. They're someone else. They're a person who's having a problem with a medical issue. Yeah. Stacy MacArthur, uh, you work with the youth, State Youth Health and Wellness Coordinator. Uh, faculty member. T- faculty member. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I understand there's a youth track. Absolutely. In, in the summit. Um, Susie Prevedel and Sandy Solser have done an amazing job um, for the last two years uh, getting the programming and the funding to come into our state and to USU to start these programs that we've heard uh, about that are happening. And one of the things that I'm adding is that we're starting to add a youth component. Uh, so we're we're beginning to have a youth track at these things. We're, we're creating youth opioid prevention coalitions. We have uh, three of those around the state right now, and one of them is housed in Emory County. Uh, those are led by youth and then adult mentors and coaches along with the extension faculty that are helping to have those conversations. So the people that the youth are inviting to be on those coalitions are people like principals, teachers, healthcare workers, uh, the local sheriff's department, people that they're interacting with in the adult world on a daily basis, but, but may not have a voice normally in those youth adult partnerships. And we would love to have those youth be able to help each other and to talk to each other and to open up uh, to reduce the stigma to make it so that it's a conversation. And so that's what we're trying to do with youth. And that's what we're trying to we're trying to bring in some more funding um, in addition to Dr. Solzer's uh, to start youth programming in the state. And one of those is going to be uh, with Tim Cady this fall in Box Elder County. And we're trying to pull that into other counties. Mm. Uh, understand uh, there'd be some discussion um, or or advice resources for grandparents who are now raising grandkids, which is a problem exacerbated by this crisis. Yes, there's again a number of people are going to be talking and speaking on those problems that we're seeing in our society, um, and what we can do to hopefully help them feel more comfortable discussing these problems with their families. And that becomes very important as far as, you know, again, what we do as part of extension is trying to work with the entire group, you know, families, communities, um, loved ones, people that care for those that are having those substance use issues. Yeah. Uh, Dean Ward, um, I want to go back to this idea of rural. It's titled Tribal and Rural. 
uh, Rural Opioid Health and Wellness uh, Summit. Stacy mentioned Emory County. I recently drove again through Emory County. Um, hardly saw a town, right? I'm not casting aspersions at Emory County, um, but uh, you have to travel a long way if you're in these rural areas to get to anybody who can help. Yes, and so part of what we're trying to do at the university level is gather best practices from around the country. I mean, Utah is hardly alone in having to face these challenges. So what can we learn from the experience of states in other parts of the country that we could bring here and use the tools at the disposal of the university? The internet, our extension offices, which are in every county, to, to bring this information that can help people turn their lives in a healthier direction. So I think that's part of what makes USU well positioned. And I want to go back to a comment made earlier. I have been impressed at the holistic approach that can be taken to these issues. USU trains future teachers future social workers, future police officers, future nurses. When opioids affect a family, think about the people in the wider community who, who want to help. They're coming from all these different perspectives. And so we can create an opportunity to bring these different experiences, these different approaches together and come up with a more coordinated response because in some of these small communities it's going to be the the county deputy sheriff um, who may be the person who's best or someone from family and child services who's going to be in a position or someone at the school whether it's a teacher or a counselor who can can see that there's a there's a, a student who's who's really troubled because something's going on at home that they don't quite understand. So that's another thing that USU can do in some of our rural communities is galvanize these these disparate resources and in, improve the communication. And just interacting, right, and all of the – hopefully synergy happens, right, that people can learn what services are and just that I'm not alone in this. And, and to just get on the same page mm-hmm. so that the first responder – is able to provide similar information to someone at the school or somebody at the hospital. Understand there will be resources for those affected by substance abuse at, yes, at the will. summit. Yeah. Yes, there'll be a um, considerable amount of resources for people to talk with and um, get more information about. And as the dean mentioned, uh, law enforcement, first responders, medical professionals, um, reducing the stigma for, for different treatments, uh, so, Tim Cady, I see you're presenting on naloxone? Correct. Tell me about that. Okay. Um, naloxone is a medication that's used in opioid overdoses. So when we talk about first responders, law enforcement, um, even people in clinics, what are they going to do if someone comes in and has possibly had an opioid overdose or are suffering from that? Um, so we teach how to stop that with what we call Narcan or naloxone. So it's an injectable. Um, IM, so intramuscular, or up your nose. So it's a a nasal spray that can be used. Um, And we follow that training, very similar to CPR training. We want people to all have that understanding and be able to use Narcan. We're giving away free Narcan kits or IM kits to people that come to the summit. They'll be trained um, across those two days. 
and allow them hopefully to be able to um, make those reversals if necessary for that medication. Now, something that's you know rather new, I think, in the state of Utah and even across the U.S. But in EMS, I've been involved in EMS for about 30 years, right. and so it's been used for many years in EMS, um, Narcan or, or naloxone. But being able to have people in the communities use it is very important, we think, and um, it's been a I think a great blessing to those that have used it um, and those that actually uh, obviously are the recipients of having that reversal uh, get a chance to better their lives and do something different. And what we find is, you know, I've had people that um, are substance users tell me that th they appreciate that revival, um, being able to obviously have that second chance, but they also know that it's not easy. Um, we know that anything using a, a narcotic or especially an addiction is going to be difficult to recover from. And these people are working at it um, and doing some great things. And we think that the state of Utah providing that um, naloxone or Narcan to people is a, is a great blessing for everybody. Um, you get it at pharmacies. You can get it from different places across the state, um, and even different communities. And Summit, Price, and those areas have people working on that um, from across the state to provide that free service. Um, and so very simply... Someone that's having an opioid overdose um, is unconscious, has possibly pinpoint pupils, um, maybe sweating, um, and then not breathing. The big problem with nar narcotics is it causes people not to breathe. And if they're not breathing, obviously that's a problem. So narcotic actually is on a, basically a chemical receptor in the brain that basically has people reduce their breathing. So breathing can be reduced, and when you see that happening, you see those kind of a combination of things happening. You can't wake them up, sternal rubs, CPR, check for breathing all of that. If it's very, very slow, um, maybe try rescue breathing, but also get your naloxone ready. Um, call 911, have your naloxone out, um, put that up somebody's nose, give it one spray for the kind that we provide at this training. Um, give it a spray or an injection and wait two to three minutes. If that person doesn't respond, try it again. So in the meantime, you're giving rescue breaths, um, putting them on their side if they may be vomiting or having other issues. And then um, hopefully 911 gets there in time. Um, and if not, you give the other dose and at two or three minutes later and wait again and see what happens. And hopefully that person is revived. And um, I've had people tell me that it's given them obviously a second chance, but also gives them a chance to get treatment. It's not just a simple thing. And people don't, I think, recover from that really quickly. It's a pretty um, difficult thing, I think, to have someone wake up and say, hey, you were just basically, you were dead. Um, we revived you with uh, this um, naloxone or um, Narcan, and now we're going to go forward and see what you can do to help make changes if you're ready or you know, be ready when you're ready to make those changes. Yeah. Stacey MacArthur, um, back focusing on youth, this special problem among the youth? Um, I think it is because the youth have a hard time uh, crossing that stigma barrier. Uh, they think that it's a problem that they shouldn't be talking about. They don't know where to get resources or help. Uh, to respond to those things. And I'm not sure that they feel comfortable having that conversation with adults yet. And that's what we're trying to normalize through these through these summits of having a youth track to make it so that it's a youth adult partnership that they can see that there are people ready and willing to assist them, to open the conversation, to not be judging, but to actually just connect connect to resources, connect to the internet, as was discussed before, connect to YouTube videos, training on Narcan. Any of those youth can, can respond to having practical solutions to each other, being peer counselors, 
anything like that, that we just want to make sure that they know that this is a community issue, not a personal issue. We want to be connectors and make it so that they know that there are resources to help them. Hmm. I want to end this segment with uh, Dean Ward. And you said earlier, get everybody on the same page, right? Holistic approach. Very. I'm noticing that the summit will uh, talk about resources for community members, uh, food pantry, haircuts, um, um, law clinic for those who need expungement. It's I had very little understanding or appreciation of how deeply rooted in communities uh, this crisis can be and how it puts stress on different parts of our society in different ways. Describing the process of reviving someone, think of the stress that this has added to our first responders. You know, when they're called to a situation, they don't know what they're going into. They might have to bring somebody back who's on the the verge of death. Uh, That has to change the nature of the job. When I think about school teachers and counselors and so forth, how this affects the entire fabric of our community. And so I think we need to listen to one another with compassion and with a sense of curiosity. You know, I want to understand your experience of this, and you should want to understand my experience of this. It's going to destigmatize it. I think this. I think getting beyond stigma is a major challenge. Um, this is, you know, in, in parts of our culture, there is just not an acceptance of this. So the more that we can help people understand the roots of this crisis and, and how many people have developed – um, a struggle uh, with opioids because of a medical condition that they'd had. They're recovering from surgery, et cetera, and, and, and that's when their challenge began. So we have to destigmatize it. We have to bring respect to those who are trying to help. And I think all of us need just a, a deeper understanding of, of how this has permeated so many different aspects of our community. Good place to end this uh, segment. We've had with us uh, Dean Joseph Ward, uh, Dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Thanks so much for for coming in. Uh, Timothy Cady is a professional practice uh, professor and extension, uh, professional practice extension assistant professor. Thank you. Thank you very much. much. And uh, Stacey MacArthur is associate Uh, extension uh, professor and uh, works with state youth health and wellness thank you so much Uh, by the way you can uh, go uh, register for this conference was happening in price thursday and friday extension.usu.edu slash rural opioid summit you're listening to access u time tom williams will have more following this break Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. There's still time to purchase tickets to UPR's upcoming summer concert at the Vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms in Hyde Park, Under the Sunset, on Sunday, July 28th. 
Hear Ryan Conger, who recently returned from Europe after touring with the USU Jazz Orchestra and his band, while enjoying food from Culinary Concepts. Purchase tickets at upr.org. See you there. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at intermountainhealthcare.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Tom Williams with you. We are previewing the Rural Opioid Health and Wellness Summit that's happening on Thursday and Friday in Price at USU Eastern. And uh, we appreciate you uh, uh, joining us for the program. We're turning now to uh, Professor Matea Savoy-Roskas. She is uh, with the Department of Nutrition and Food Sciences. Is that correct, Professor? Yes, Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Science at Utah State University. Okay, and uh, you'll be presenting there at uh, the summit on uh, motivational interviewing. What What is that? Yeah, so motivational interviewing is really a style of communication and a set of kind of counseling techniques that originally have been developed uh, to use with addictions as a way to help facilitate that behavior change process. Now it is used in a wide variety of health-related disciplines, um, and so you'll see that anything from addictions all the way to working with individuals who have chronic diseases. And it's a, it's a way of communicating with clients or, or patients um, to, to help them kind of facilitate that change process on, on their own, and it's a very client-centered approach. So really the intent is to focus in on what the client experiences, what their barriers are to behavior change, what their facilitators are, um, what their goals and values are around their, their overall health and why they want to change. It's also a very collaborative approach, and so that's something that's different than you know, some other styles of counseling and communication, is this approach is really meant to be a partnership between the client and the practitioner. And so it's kind of recognizing that a client or a patient comes into that session with a lot of, of their own experiences that are different from anyone else. And they also come in with a very good understanding of their, their life and their barriers and their facilitators and what um, makes them tick, kind of what will help them through this behavior change process. And then the practitioner is really there to kind of help them better understand, you know, why it is that they might want to change and maybe how they can go through that process, but doing so in a way that's very respective of that client's autonomy and their um, them as individuals. Uh, is it, uh, I assume uh, we're seeing success with this? Yes. Are we? Uh, yes. So this is, uh, motivational interviewing was uh, really started back in the 80s. Like I said, it really started in addictions work and it has just expanded since then. And there's a lot of research on the impact of motivational interviewing in, in all these different fields. And so what we're finding is that 
when, when counselors or therapists or health professionals are using motivational interviewing techniques, those clients are more likely to adhere to their goals and kind of maintain that uh, the goals that they're working towards. Uh, they're also more likely to come back and, and want to visit with you again, which is always good when we're talking about behavior change. And so we're just seeing that uh, these clients that get to experience motivational interviewing as a technique uh, used by their counselors or therapists or health professionals are much more likely to be successful in the long term. Well, uh, we've been talking with Matias Savoy Roscos. She's assistant professor in the Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Sciences Department. She'll be presenting at the Rural Opioid Health and Wellness Summit. That's happening Thursday and Friday uh, at USU Eastern in Price. Uh, professor, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. That uh, summit is happening, as I mentioned, Thursday and Friday in Price at USU Eastern. Just wanted to give the uh, website here. You can find out more information. Sign up for the conference at extension.usu.edu slash rural opioid summit. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.